Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a brand new middle grade novel. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider the strange and unexpected paths authors might take when delving into their family's history and the foundational questions they might confront. In this case, we're talking about Menachem Kaiser and his new book, Plunder, a memoir of family property and Nazi treasure. I like what Menachem says about his book on his website. I think it's a good place to start. So here it is. In 2015, I learned that my grandfather, whom I had never met and about whom I knew nearly nothing, had tried for 30 years to reclaim or at least be compensated for property that had belonged to his family before World War II. I decided I would take up his cause. I then learned about a heretofore unknown relative, my grandfather's closest relative to have survived the war, in fact, who, on account of a secret diary he had written in the camps, has become a semi-mythological figure among Silesian or Polish treasure hunters. He goes on to say, it's hard to summarize. Plunder is this story, these stories. It's a lovely mess. Well, it's so much more than a lovely mess. We decided (laughs) to reach out to Menachem after reading a rave review of the book in the New York Times that called it and I'm quoting, a twisting and reverberant and consistently enthralling story. It's a weird story that gets weirder. I mean, <laughs> done, right? Like, who doesn't want to read that book? You know, he, he goes from intergenerational effects of the Holocaust, Nazi treasure hunters, mysterious tunnels, and finding out you have a relative who's a Polish Jewish folk hero. You know, what more could anybody want from a book? I mean, for me, nothing. Um, Plunder is Menachem's first book. It's been named a New York Times Editor's Choice, a Best Book of March by the Christian Monitor, and a Best New Book by People. Menachem's shorter fiction and nonfiction pieces have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, Vogue, and elsewhere. We started by asking Menachem about the effects of his grandfather's Holocaust experience on later generations in his family. In the first chapter of your book, you say that your grandfather never talked about his experiences during World War II. No one knows what concentration camps he was in or what he experienced there. But you say his children, so your father and your father's siblings, seemed unhaunted by the silence, and that sense of normalcy was passed down to you. Then when you saw the documents showing how your grandfather had tried and failed for 20 years to reclaim the family apartment building in Poland that had been taken during the war, you thought, and I'm quoting, here was an opportunity to allow myself to be disturbed. So I have questions about that. Mm -hmm. First, why do you think your family was unhaunted by your grandfather's silence? It goes against one expected storyline, right? That the secrets of an earlier generation cause ripple effects for later generations, problems for them. 
Yeah, I think they were superficially unhaunted, and that's the way I was raised. Like, I wasn't keyed in to any sort of disturbance. And so, like, you know, when I'm in my 20s, when I would meet other grandchildren survivors, I was always very taken aback by how they felt traumatized or indirectly traumatized by the Holocaust. I never felt that. I think something that's lost often in these conversations is, right, we have these narratives now of sort of uh, people who, you know, went through horrific trauma, especially during World War II, and then sort of pass that down in some form to their children and to their grandchildren. But what is less understood is how much they were striving for normalcy in the immediate post-war period. Uh, My father, the way he puts it is that, like, it was completely normal, as in no one he knew had any grandparents. And so their story didn't feel as extraordinary perhaps. And so like what they were really trying to do with their lives was rebuild it. They, I think on a pretty conscious level, were trying to shut out that history. It's such interesting language that you use. You say, here was an opportunity to allow myself to be disturbed. So why did you need the opportunity? Why did you embrace it? And why did you want to be disturbed? Yeah, I think, you know, having grown up with the sort of like uh, empty ghost, if you will, of my grandfather, and then I f- was faced with this opportunity to meet him in a sense. You know, I didn't never knew anything about him. To be, you know, frank, I was never all that curious, which points to my own failures of like, imagination and empathy. And then I sort of encountered his frustrated efforts to reclaim the building. It just felt for the first time in my life that I was encountering him. And I was like, here's a way to connect, maybe not with him, but with sort of like his legacy and to sort of be in conversation with him. But it felt like a way to touch my family story in a way that I just never thought would ever be possible. One thing I love about your book is how honest you are about the decisions you make that are, well, that you yourself question, that you called questionable. So for example, in order to try to reclaim ownership of the building in Poland, you needed signed powers of attorney from your father and his siblings. Mm -hmm. But your uncle Herschel had a history of being difficult. So you decided to go forward as if he didn't exist, as if your father and his sister were the only siblings. What are your thoughts now about that decision? And we're also curious, did Uncle Herschel and his children ever find out about this? Well, I suppose they must have, right, if they've read this book. And what was their reaction to this? Um, Right. So, you know, it's a complicated family story. And so the decision was reached to leave him out of it. I think on the surface, that was one of expediency. Mm -hmm. And so there was just no way he would have signed it. But he was very sick at the time as well. And so just approaching him to get a signature was kind of a Mm non-starter. Now, if it was purely up to me, I would have chosen not to sort of continue. I made a kind of decision, again, wouldn't have been ideal, but to sort of continue the fight into the next generation, uh, which was something I was very uncomfortable with. And I also think on a somewhat symbolic level, we were erasing him from the historical record. You know, I also ended up committing perjury, uh, which is also, you know, something I didn't want. But I, I don't know if there was another way in order to sort of proceed with the reclamation and trying to have him on board. And also I did feel and do feel that it really wasn't me. I was representing the generation above me. Yeah. And um, I will say now that uh, Uncle Herschel um, passed away, actually, 
just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. sorry. Yeah. Mm. Uh, thank you. Um, but the, the book has been sort of a, an unexpected opening, I think largely a healthy one, actually, to sort of revisit what drove us apart originally. Yeah. And it's given us children, you know, my family and his children, a sort of opportunity to compare notes, which is something we've never really done before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I sort of some preliminary conversations have started from the book. I, I was terrified uh, of how the book would be received. Yeah. Yeah. And so those fears have been largely unfounded through some like, wonderful mix of, uh, you know, just people sometimes are more mature than you expect and also more repressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's been a load off my shoulders for sure. I will say there was one event, which I did in Toronto, which quite a few of my cousins came, which, you know, was the first time that happened to me. And it got opened up to questions from the audience. And, uh, one of my cousins asked me like point blank, he's, if I was lying in the book, Oh. And not actually not in a confrontational way. He was uh-huh. just like, did you actually get the building back and just are just not telling people? Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's kind of an audience. Right? It, it, was, it was sort of like it was my synagogue. So it was kind of a, oh, an audience where everyone knew everyone. And everyone, worse, sort of, right? everyone knew the history of the fight. But so far, yeah, it hasn't blown up. You know, there's been fights about things. It's just like you said, you write a memoir and things people are just going to be upset about things you just never expect. Yeah. And then not upset about things you're really scared about. It's just wild, like what people are actually angry about and what people don't care about. I like gave a lot of thought, had a lot of anxiety about how people react. And I was 100% wrong. Have you been surprised that someone is angry about something that you didn't think they would be angry about? And if you feel comfortable giving an example? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, So I think something I should have expected people to be angry about was... uh, so I grew up in a very religious community. And so image is very, very closely guarded. I had a scene in like that first draft watching old clips of my grandfather and he kissed women who he wasn't related to, like as greetings. They were coming to the, you know, my father's bar mitzvah, guests would walk in the door. My grandfather would like, you know, greet them with a, a peck on the lips or a peck on the cheek, like very, you know, 19, you know, 60s. Mm-hmm. And that was, I had to take that out. If I would have kept that in, some of my family members would have been so distressed. And it just, it wasn't essential to what I was writing. So I didn't mind taking it out. Right. I also had a, like a throwaway line in there about how my grandmother used to cover her couch, like with a plastic slip cover. Mm-hmm. And that um, set off a, a great controversy. <laughs> I was accused of defaming my grandmother and that, that actually turned out to be quite i actually took that one out but i'm going to get back at everyone by writing an essay about that well that's well it's going to be on the podcast unless you tell us not to I, hear right. it. Oh, I, i'm totally okay with that okay. I need, I, i'm sorry i need to know just a little more why is that defamatory it's 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 a i don't entirely know to be honest the person who was angry was so angry that they didn't talk to me directly put it that way like it was all had to be done through an intermediary i think it just like painted an image of her as like a very immigrant-ish woman Mm -hmm. which she was Mm -hmm. yeah it did set off like a really interesting conversation first of all it set off a full-blown investigation into whether or not my grandmother did actually cover her sofa 
And so this took quite some time. Uh, so some people remember she had, and some people remember she hadn't. There was photographic evidence pointing in both directions. And so that that was a kind of a lot of fun. But then I sort of got the point in in a backhanded way, as in, I was like, okay, I don't think I defamed my grandmother by uh, writing that she had a plastic slipcover on her sofa. But I was like, if that's the only thing that's in there about her, then I could see how I'm sort of making her into a little bit of a caricature, which was, that's me like really being generous towards <laughs> the complainant. Yes. I'm on board with that. Yeah. But yeah, my mother asked me pleadingly to take out the curse words. Uh, I did actually, except the word uh, penis. <laughs> well, but that's not a curse. It's not a curse word. It's, it's, it's funny. My mother has a, a library actually. She volunteers um, like a religious library in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And so she said, if I take the word penis out, she'll put it in the library. But I couldn't take the word. I challenged her to come up with a synonym. Oh, wait a minute. So she won't put the book in the library because <laughs> no. you use the word penis once. Uh, well, yeah, it's a very religious library. Yeah, no, I, so, I totally, yeah. I totally there's understand only, There's that. no books there that are not from religious publishers. I was like jokingly hoping she'd make an ex- uh, exception <laughs> for me. Yeah. So continuing with complicated issues, your effort to reclaim the Polish apartment building seems, you know, on the one hand, it seems straightforward and limited in scope. The building belonged to your family. It was taken from them illegitimately. You want it back. And at the same time, pursuing this taps into huge issues like when should later generations be recompensed for devastating wrongs inflicted on their ancestors and who exactly should pay the cost? And so in thinking through these kinds of complicated issues, can you tell us how some of these bigger ethical questions played out for you? Sure. When I started the reclamation process, the narratives I was working with were like the received ones. It was a sort of historical consciousness pretty much exclusively informed by my upbringing. The idea of like, okay, Jewish reclamation is pretty straightforward. My family had this apartment building. You know, they still technically or at least rightfully should own this building. That's it. There's no other considerations. Mm -hmm. But then as... I was spending a lot of time in Poland then, meeting a lot of people, mostly expats actually, who had moved there, and either they were academics or artists or activists. And they, you know, mostly politely, but sometimes not so politely, sort of challenged me on these narratives, and they really pushed. Mm-hmm. So I found sort of the challenges to my moral and legal justification to be, uh, let's say, less than convincing. It sort of hardened, actually, my sense of like why my family was justified. I was like, if my family hadn't been murdered, no one would dare say that it isn't our like property. It's crazy to me that like the fact that they were murdered should mean that their right to the property is therefore nullified. Yeah. But what it did do, it really expanded my consciousness to include. I feel like a uh, quite a bit of shame actually, like saying this now because it sounds like such an obvious thing to consider, but thinking about the people who live in those buildings. It's something that it just wasn't part of like my considerations when I started the process. And that's something that I never would have had had I not been spending time in Poland. Mm-hmm. If you undergo even something as precarious as a reclamation process, but if you do it from a distance, people recede. People like end up just sort of being like the nameless inhabitants of a property. So it was a real lesson in sort of being honest and aware 
with how your actions affect people. It's like, like a little bit of a tricky balancing act to sort of put that on one side and sort of hold on to your legal and moral rights on the other. Yeah. You write in the book that Poland is a place not just of Nazi brutality and Jewish genocide, but also of Nazi treasure, and that these things are connected. Can you say a little bit about the treasure and its connection to the brutality? Right. The story takes a turn when I find out about these treasure hunters. When these treasure hunters announced to the world that they found this train, which was full of looted gold, and like the you know international news went into a frenzy. Um, and I read all that and was like really taken and sort of weirded out. And I couldn't really make sense of it. It, it just felt like a completely different kind of storyline, mm-hmm. like a World War II storyline. One was that very like shiny and adventurous, uh, literally about Nazi gold. Mm-hmm. And I think what gets lost in these kinds of stories is just the brutality. And it happens quite often in like in different arenas with World War II history. There's something undeniably sexy and alluring about like the Nazi storyline. You just see it in pop culture. You turn on the History Channel, and I, I, if you like, sort of count the programming dedicated toward like the Nazi war machine versus the victims of the Nazi war machine, it, it's not going to be an even ratio. Right. People are just very drawn to those stories without really appreciating the immense human cost. I love the incredible range of issues that Menachem has already raised in this interview, everything from the complicated equities involved with restitution to the symbolic significance of a slipcover and how much seemingly little things like that can end up mattering in a family. And now we're getting to the issues raised by Nazi treasure hunters. Yes. And I think we need to do a little background for everybody. So there's a subculture, mostly in southwest Poland, in a province called Silesia, of about 100,000 people who search for Nazi artifacts, some just with metal detectors and some using high-end sophisticated equipment. The connection to Silesia is something called Project Risa, which is a series of underground Nazi tunnels or complexes built by Jewish slave labor during World War II. They are astonishing engineering feats. None of them were completed, but the ones that came close are enormous. They can be 200 feet long with ceilings that are 50 or 60 feet high. They're almost like underground neighborhoods. Yes, and there's virtually no primary German documentation about their purpose. So the treasure hunters are fascinated by why they were built and what might be stored in there. There is one document that's required reading for the treasure hunters. It's the diary of a concentration camp prisoner who somehow managed to keep a diary while working on the tunnels as a concentration camp prisoner. By incredible coincidence, it turns out that this prisoner... Abraham Kaiser, was Menachem's grandfather's cousin. They're the only two members of that branch of the family that survived the war. And once the treasure hunters learned that, they embraced Menachem as a kind of celebrity and included him in all sorts of excursions. So we asked Menachem whether he found it daunting or even scary to interact with the treasure hunters. These are people who devote their lives to collecting Nazi artifacts and sometimes even fetishize those artifacts. Here's what he said. I think initially when I sort of uh, encountered just the vast trove of Nazi paraphernalia uh, that these guys had collected, I was weirded out. I never felt in any danger, but I, I pretty quickly came to understand it's something closer to like uh, trophies or the way I call it is like scalps from a fallen enemy. 
Mm. They hate Nazis with a passion I've seen unequaled anywhere else. Honestly, to an extent that's kind of disturbing because it sort of extends to contemporary Germans. So I never felt in any danger, but it definitely took some getting used to. And that that took uh, quite some time for me to sort of leave my own preconceptions and appreciate them on their own terms. You wrote that on some level you felt a strange kinship with them because of your reclamation process. You said our ambitions were obviously very different, but on some level I felt that they rhymed. So I'm, yeah, I, I want to hear you explain that and sort of say to what extent was the family building really the treasure for you? And to what extent was the Nazi paraphernalia really the treasure for them? I think what it is is that there's, when you have like these quote unquote treasure, and like in their case, like a literal treasure, in my case, like a piece of real estate, I think there's the object. And the object is really just stage one. It's the easiest to sort of explain motivations about. But it, it's never the heart of the matter. If you're just looking for an object, it's a game. If you're devoting like real resources and emotional energy to something, I think the questions lie much deeper. And I think like the, I started to appreciate the questions that the treasure hunters were asking, even if like it was implicit. And then also began to appreciate that the building was sort of beside the point. There's something about interrogating your own motivations and starting to figure out why you're doing what you're doing. The object is to me is always going to be less interesting than the process. Sorry, what were the implicit questions that you think that the treasure hunters were asking? I think it's it's a question of trying to wrestle with history in a way that I think is often very problematic. So to give some examples, so I think like people hear treasure hunters and they have like the they have a very narrow image of like these guys looking for their swastika helmets or stuff like that. But in a larger extent, when you take them as like a collective group, they're sort of wrestling with the unanswered questions of history, particularly when it relates to space. Like what was what happened here? Mm. An example I cite very often is a, in one of the treasure hunters named Shishtoff. He devoted years to finding a concentration camp that had been wiped off the map. He had spent years in like the, the local municipality interviewing locals, and he found the concentration camp. He was wrestling, and it, he is still part of that group. And these guys, I, again, often very problematic, very complicated, and sometimes really messed up. But the most generous way of thinking about it is they're saying like, the history, especially in that part of the world, has all these voids, and sometimes literal, sometimes metaphorical, and they're 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 wrestling with that. Mm. So, at one point during your multi-year reclamation process, your father said to you, in essence, "Why are you so obsessed with this? It's not what your grandfather would have cared about." And your father grew up with your grandfather. You never met him, so your father's view has legitimacy, but. My sense was, and correct me if I'm wrong, his assessment didn't make you less obsessed. Why is that? It's a little bit vague in the book, and I don't, for reasons I'll explain. Um, you know, my father is a very religious man, and I was raised in a very religious household. Uh, and you know, to the extent I've come to understand my grandfather's intentions of raising his children and like his, you know, subsequently his grandchildren, was to impart that. 
a fear of God, if you will, and sort of a, a religious lifestyle and like a love and respect for tradition. And so when my father and I have the fight that's depicted in the book, he was responding to sort of what he perceived as my disrespect for that tradition as a, a throwing away of that legacy. What I heard him saying as a representative of my grandfather was being like, you are misunderstanding your inheritance. Mm. And sort of you're prioritizing the things that shouldn't be prioritized. He was saying, you're devoting all this time to this property in Poland. Like if your grandfather would see the way you're living, that's not what he would care most about. I didn't hear as a reprimand of being obsessed about the building. I heard it as a sort of reprimand of not caring about the things my grandfather would have cared most deeply about. Hmm. Near the end of the book, you say, which is preferable, the celebrated myth, which is at least partly false, or the uncelebrated person, the memory of whom so quickly disappears? Can you tell us the story involving your grandfather's cousin that underlies those questions? And do you have even the start of an answer? (laughs) Sure. So, you know, this, I was writing about Abraham Kaiser in this sense, and Abraham Kaiser, you know, he survived the war and then um, he stayed in Poland for a couple of years and then he immigrated to Israel where his sister lived. And in, in Poland, you know, after he left, about 10 years after he left, this diary was published in Poland and over you know, in the last 50 years, a diary has like taken on a life of its own. Um, and it's been just embraced by the treasure community. It's printed and reprinted, it's sold in gift shops. And Abraham Kaiser is a man that all the treasure hunters know. And they've all read his book, many of them, many, many times. And he's the celebrated figure. His book was also published in Israel. And in Israel, it was very quickly out of print, forgotten. It took me years to track down a copy. And then, you know, I went to his grave in Israel and it was a, just an abandoned, it was like full of dirt. It took me hours to find, it was obstructed. And um, it just like really struck me. And, and you know, he didn't have any children. Uh, he has a few nephews and nieces who are older. And um, within a few years, no one who remembers him firsthand will be alive. He was a loved uncle. That's no longer going to be the case. And so I was really sort of wrestling with this question of, In Poland, Abraham Kaiser has become a sort of mythological figure. He's remembered for things that he probably wouldn't relate to. He's remembered for writing sort of details in his diary about tunnels. But in Israel, where he's remembered as who he was, it's quickly fading. And so I don't have anything resembling an answer to that. Menachem asks so many bedrock questions with no easy answer, including this question of whether it's better to become mythologized in a way that's remembered and celebrated but false, or whether it's better to be uncelebrated but true and loved, even if far more quickly forgotten. This reminds me of this moment that my family had on Masada. My dad was 81, and the tour guide didn't realize that my dad wasn't with my mom on the gondola that travels to the top of the mountain. My dad was still with us and the guy didn't realize it. And so he took us up the more strenuous path, one that was really too difficult for my dad. We tried to stop him from walking up this path and my dad insisted 
ongoing over our strenuous objections. And at times he was crawling up the mountain. He wouldn't let us help him. It was very frightening. He put himself in danger. He put others in danger because they had to walk off the path onto the slope, a steep slope to walk around him. It was very, very scary and a nightmare of a time. But what's remembered, because my brothers posted it on Facebook and they touted as, um, you know, my 81-year-old father, unsteady on his feet and against the strenuous objections of his children, climbed Masada today and reached the top. It took a long time, but he did it, you know. And so what's remembered is this kind of mythologized version of what happened And that post on Facebook got hundreds of likes and so many yays and amazing. Whereas if I had posted the reality of what happened, which was like my father, you know, terrified us. Almost died and almost fell off the side. (laughs) Put us at risk and put others at risk. That would have been a very different reaction. And that's the reality I think that will, will get lost. It won't live on. And I think a lot of times myths have an element of this. It's a really interesting question. And just that story, there's your version, you know, the scary, deathly story. And then there's your brother's version. And then there's your father's version. And I don't know, I think all stories get mythologized, depending on who tells them. I mean, it's different in Menachem's cousin's case, because it becomes a public story and a public mythology. But I think it underscores how, even when you're talking about the people who were there and the people who were directly involved the story can be so different. Right. And this is something I love about the book. It's that he poses these difficult questions, which always brought my mind to other difficult questions. You know, one obvious example is just, should he get the money for this property overlooking the residents who currently live there? Which of course is a question that he discussed, but then it it leads to much broader questions of restitution in other countries, including our own. Yeah, It's a very thought-provoking book. It is. And we should also mention that we conducted this interview during the most recent violence in Israel. And so, you know, talking about whether he should have rights to the building and the people who live there, we were all thinking about what was going on in Jerusalem with the evictions and the Palestinians who were living in the apartments. So these issues are going on today. They're new today as well as unresolved from decades ago. Yes, so many reverberations. Absolutely. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Menachem at www.mnchm.com and on Twitter at Menachem Kaiser. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.